To stay informed of new episode postings and other updates, please follow at GermaniaPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 4, Life Beyond the Landies. After the Roman disaster in the Teutoburg Forest, Augustus decreed that the natural borders of Rome would never extend beyond the Rhine or Danube rivers. As part of his final will, he commanded his successors to never cross those frontiers again. To keep the borders of the empire secure from the barbarian tribes, the Romans began construction of what we now call the Limes Germanicus. The Limes Germanicus was a system of forts along the Rhine and Danube rivers that provided a more firm border and limited entry points for trade and migration. The system eventually included over 60 forts and 900 watchtowers, with the main focus on the 200-mile-long stretch between the westward bend of the Rhine at modern-day Mainz and the main flow of the Danube at Regensburg. The bulk of the construction work was done between the reigns of Tiberius and Domitian, with ongoing construction continuing for centuries until the borders collapsed during the 5th century. That did not mean that Roman armies never ventured across the river, or that Roman politicians gave up on influencing the relationships between the tribes. But the northern borders of direct administration by Rome stayed mostly fixed for the remainder of the empire. The Roman provinces of Germania Inferior and Germania Superior were formally established in 85 AD, directly along the Rhine, though the military occupation of those areas began nearly a century prior. Germania Inferior included areas around the modern nations of Belgium and the Netherlands, with a capital in Colonia, the modern city of Cologne. Germania Superior covered the areas in southeastern France and western Switzerland, with a capital in Mogontiacum, the modern city of Mainz. The Roman provinces of Raetia and Noricum were south of the Danube in lands that are part of the modern nations of Switzerland and Austria, respectively. This left the independent territory of Germania to the dozens of tribal groups east of the Rhine and north of the Danube, stretching north into modern Denmark and east to modern Poland, near the Vistula River. So the territory we are looking at is bordered by, by the North and Baltic Seas to the north, the Rhine to the west, the Alps in the southwest, the Danube to the south, and the Black Sea to the east. This is clearly not a completely closed border, and that is why the origins of Germanic tribes can be so difficult to pin down. It is also why, over time, the tribes would be pushed more into Roman territory by threats from the east. Today, we can see the impact of these borders in terms of the primary languages spoken in different countries, with the areas of strongest Roman influence continuing to speak Latin-based Romance languages, while the border territories and beyond speaking Germanic languages. It is possible that if Romanius had not won his battle in the Teutoburg Forest, many world languages, most notably German, Dutch, and English, would not exist in anything close to their current forms. 
We're going to spend the rest of this episode discussing the culture, customs, and politics of the Germanic tribes circa the first century AD. We need to remember that much of what we know about these tribes during this period comes from Roman historians, and frequently this is, these historians were writing years or decades later, relying on sources that we no longer have available. When writing about the barbarian tribes, they are also typically contrasting them to Roman society during their particular era, either to celebrate or damn it, depending on the perspective of the writer. The culture description I'm going to share now is heavily influenced by Tacitus's writings from the period of roughly 85 to 115 AD, spanning the reigns of Domitian to Trajan. Tacitus revered the latter and damned the former, he also felt that Roman society had become decadent and immoral by this period. So, consider yourselves fairly warned about potential biases. Physically, the Germans were taller and larger than other people who were in contact with the Romans, and with a fair complexion. Tacitus writes that their larger frames were seen as a disadvantage in war, as it made them more susceptible to getting worn down over the course of a battle. No one could match the endurance of the Roman legions. They wore their reddish hair much longer than was customary in Rome and remained bearded while the Romans were clean-shaven. The Romans viewed them as a completely separate race from any others known to them, both within their borders and beyond, who were better adapted to the colder temperatures so far north. During this period, winters in the area were much colder than they are now, cold enough that the Rhine and Danube rivers uh, routinely would ice over completely uh, during the winter uh, to a thickness that allowed entire armies to cross over on foot and horseback and, and pulling carts. Additionally, the fact that the Germanic tribes had common or similar spoken languages led the Romans to consider them a common race, and one free from intermixing with others, because who would willingly move into Germania? According to Tacitus, quote, Moreover, even ignoring the dangers or fearful unknown seas, who would leave Asia Minor, Africa, or Italy to seek out Germany, a wild land with a harsh climate, dismal in aspect and culture, unless it is one's own homeland? Unquote. Now, I realize commentary on racial purity in a podcast about Germany is going to set off some alarm bells. I want to remind you that those comments are coming from a historian of Rome, one of the great multi-ethnic empires of all time, whose strength came from their ability to integrate ideas from other cultures as they enveloped them. By the time of Tacitus, Trajan had just become the first provincial emperor, originating from Hispania. Furthermore, when Rome finally fell, one of the immediate causes was their inability to continue integrating new cultures into their empire. So, separate from the intention at the time, with full historical perspective, I don't think a Roman writer highlighting a group's racial purity should be considered a compliment. The religion of the Germanic tribes was focused around nature, with the belief that a god should not be enclosed within a building or given a human likeness. Unlike religions with the story of the earth being created by gods, the Germans celebrated a god named Tuisto, who was born from the earth. Tuisto then had a son, Manus, the originator of the German race. Each tribe then traced their lineage back to a son of Manus. 
One of the key features of the tribes that led to their designation as barbarians, both at the time and in historical records into the 20th century, was their lack of a written language. While the tribes had some level of writing, from the records that survive, this early writing seems to be limited to characters to identify names and individuals. Basically, the written language allowed a member of the tribe to mark a helmet, shield, cup, or other object with his name to signify that it was his, similar to the way my daughter's preschool assigns each child a color and shape combination to mark their cubbies and take attendance. For those who want to read ahead, written Gothic German did not develop until the 4th century, when Bishop Uphelius developed a translation of the Bible for use in converting the tribes to Christianity. We will spend a lot of time with Bishop Uphelius in later episodes. With the rise of the Romans on their southern and western borders, the tribes were limited in their ability to maintain their nomadic traditions, focused on herding and hunting. While the tribes never built any great cities, they began to set up more permanent communities around which they could develop uh, an agricultural-based life. They began trading with the Romans, and while they became trading partners, they never really developed any more complex economic system. Germania at this time was primarily dense forests and marshlands, with some land good for cereal crops but not much else. They did not set up major agricultural estates the way the Romans did across their territory, as the land was not well suited to it. The primary wealth came in the form of cattle and sheep. German livestock was considered to be a case of quantity over quality. The diet consisted of wild fruits, fresh game, and curdled milk similar to cheese. They would distill wheat and barley for an early form of beer and traded with the Romans for wine. This was important because in the political arena, drunkenness was seen as a way to make public debates more open and transparent. The opinion within Rome was that if they indulged the Germans' thirst by supplying the wine they craved, they could be conquered by that vice rather than in battle. No gold or silver deposits were known at the time in the region, and Germania was considered poor in mineral resources, though nothing at that point had been thoroughly explored. At this point, I was planning on making a joke about how you can tell there wasn't much mineral wealth because in episode 2 we talked about the existence of German sand mines as a site for archaeological remains. Really, doesn't sand mining sound like something you try when you are all out of other ideas? However, it turns out that A. I am an idiot, and B. By weight, sand is the most heavily mined material on earth and the second most common substance used in manufacturing behind only water. 53 million metric tons of sand is mined every year, which comes out to 20 kilograms, or about 45 pounds, of sand per day for every person on Earth. It is mostly used in construction materials. So, on behalf of everyone who lives in a building, or enjoys museums, or likes attending events at large stadiums, I apologize to sand mines and the men and women who keep them going. Thank you for all of your hard work. Any precious metals the Germans had came from trade or gifts with Rome. While barter was still common between the tribes, they accepted gold, silver, and copper coins when dealing with Rome. As new emperors minted new coins with their name and image, the preference of the Germans was for the well-known, more familiar coins, rather than the newer money. 
This served them well, as the amount of precious metal within the coins was continually devalued over the years. They also had a preference for silver coins over gold, as those were more useful for the lower value trade they would conduct among themselves. Each clan within a tribe was led by a chief, selected with some consideration to lineage, but primarily based on their skill as a warrior. To the extent that German tribes had kings, it was purely a wartime designation, with the chiefs of clans coming together to choose a chief of chiefs to lead the war effort. While minor matters were left to the chief to resolve, major matters were decided by the entire group and discussed at bi-monthly meetings held around the new and full moons. At these gatherings, they also elected individuals to maintain the laws within the villages and communities. Due to their religious belief that women had sacred and prophetic powers, their input was solicited and considered for most major matters. Women certainly enjoyed more, more status and input compared to women in Rome. By the first century AD and the dissolution of the Roman Republic, the Germanic tribes had developed a society far more democratic and egalitarian than what was left in Rome, with an out-of-touch and impotent senate dominated by the emperor. Again, from Tacitus, quote, It is the fault of their love of liberty that they do not meet at once when commanded to do so, but two or three days may be wasted by their tardiness in assembling. Then the chiefs or other leaders speak, according to seniority, status, military achievement, or eloquence, with authority to advise rather than power to command. If their suggestion displeases, is rejected with groans. If it finds favor, there is a clashing of spears. Such expression of assent by martial claim is the most esteemed. When deciding judicial matters, a death sentence was limited to only the most serious crimes, desertion, treason, cowardice, and sexual deviance. The condemned would typically be hanged, though particularly for crimes of sexual deviance, an offender could be drowned in a river using a heavy rock. Lighter offenses, like assault or uh, murder, were punished with a fine of horses or cattle, part of what, which went to the chief of the tribe, part of part to the victim or his family. Every member of a victimized family would receive some portion of the fine as a means to prevent feuds from festering. The tribesmen did pay tribute to their chief as a way of acknowledging his position, but it was based on what a man or household had to give and not compelled. Quote, it is a custom among the tribes for each man, freely, to grant some portion of his cattle or crops to his chieftain, which is received as an honor, but also serves his needs. Their leaders value the gifts of neighboring tribes even more highly, since they are offered by whole peoples, not merely by individuals. For example, choice steeds, magnificent armor, roundels or torques, while we have now accustomed them to accept coins also." Unquote. While the Germans understood the value of these gifts and luxuries, they did not honor them above their own freedom. As Gibbon writes, quote, their poverty secured their freedom, since our desires and our possessions are the strongest fetters of despotism, unquote. In modern parlance, their political structure reflected more mutualism or social anarchism that focused on voluntary association between people or tribes. An honor came from what you put into the community, but not what you were owned or controlled individually. 
Warfare played a central role in Germanic culture. Any adult male would be expected to carry a weapon with them at all times. In fact, the symbolic milestone of a boy becoming a man was when he was finally deemed competent to be armed. Before this, he was part of his father's household, and after, he was a subject of the community. Uh, in the U.S., we call this a Texas bar mitzvah. The primary weapon was a frame, a short spear with a sharp tip and short, narrow blade. It was a weapon suited for close combat and also at a distance. Typically, a warrior would have several at his disposal, so they could be rained down upon the enemy and then ready for the push of an infantry clash. In battle, their armies were deployed in a wedge formation, with placement within the wedge based not on skill and not by chance, but on kinship. A warrior was expected to fight harder with his brother, father, uncle, son, or cousin beside him. The women and children were frequently close to the battlefield, so defeat meant suffering for your entire tribe. Many survivors of a lost battle would commit suicide shortly thereafter. One of the Germans' greatest frustrations in fighting the Romans was that the Germans' battle tactics were focused around individual combat, through which a great warrior could prove his strength and courage. The well-disciplined Roman legions would remain in their maniple formations, following orders according to a strict hierarchy, and fighting as a unit. For the Germans, your skill and reputation in war was critical to your political and social standing. It was shameful for a chieftain to be outdone in courage, and shameful for his followers not to match the bravery of their leader. As Tacitus wrote, quote, the leader fights for victory, the followers for their leader, unquote. Since rank within a tribe often depended on the chief's favor, there was great rivalry to prove yourself as the bravest of the brave, the toughest of the tough, the strongest of the strong. Similarly, among chieftains, the rivalry was to have the largest and bravest set of followers. This is status. This is power. To be always surrounded by a large select band of young men. An adornment in peace, a defense in war. Peace was unwelcome to them, as it was easier to gain renown in troubled times. Moreover, a large retinue demands war and violence, since it is through capturing the spoils of war that would provide the lavish accoutrements that served as their pay. As Tacitus wrote, quote, It seems weak and shiftless to them to acquire by sweat what you can win with blood. Unquote. As they did in Gaul and Britannia, the Romans used the lack of common purpose and rivalry between chiefs to their political advantage. While the Romans would typically emerge victorious in any set-piece battle with the German tribes, they did respect the German skill as warriors, and also made note of their victories and capturing of legionary eagle standards over the course of, of many campaigns. Germans typically took only a single wife, with any exception based around a need to strengthen ties within the nobility. Before getting married, the groom would provide a dowry to his bride, while the bride would give her groom a gift, typically some kind of weapon. This exchange was to symbolize that they were now bound together in all things. Marriages were typically between a man and a woman of similar age, maturity, and status. 
Unlike the Romans, the Germans practiced monogamy, and adultery was considered a serious breach and could be punished accordingly. Given the egalitarian nature of their politics and their familial deployment in battle, the bigger extended family a man had, the greater the connections by marriage, the more influential he would be. As such, a woman's offspring would be as honored by her brother as by her husband. There is no advantage to being without familial ties in this society. Hospitality was important to the tribes. As Tacitus wrote, quote, It is a crime to close the door to any human being. You go to a nearby house without invitation, but that is no matter. You are received there with equal kindness. No one distinguishes between strangers or acquaintances where the laws of hospitality are concerned. Upon their deaths, the Germans enjoyed simple funerals. The only observance was to cremate the bodies of prominent men on a pyre made of choice woods. Each man would be set with his armor, and for some, the body of their horse would help to fuel the flames. Their tombs would typically be just a mound of turf. Uh, they did not believe in the labor and difficulty of building monuments to the dead, as that was too big a burden on the living. Since they did not engage in structured agriculture, when they were not at war, the male warriors found themselves with a lot of leisure time. They were not interested in centralizing in the type of urban centers that would facilitate manufacturing or other industry. So idle time was generally split between hunting, drinking, and gambling. In Roman descriptions, this laziness was one characteristic that was pointed out as key to their barbarism. I hope this provided a good overview for you of the culture of the Germanic tribes in the first century. From an outside perspective, like that of the Romans, the different tribes certainly seemed more similar than not. But there were critical differences that made it more difficult for the Germans to stay united for long. Over the centuries, outside forces would lead to the tribes forming the large confederations that we are much more familiar with today, the Franks, the Goths, and so on. Next week, I want to take a quick run through the different tribes that made up Germania in the first century AD. I hope you will join me next time when we meet the neighbors.